your Bibles to the 100th Psalm. That's in the book of Psalms, and it has the word, you know, the number 100 right next to it. That'll get us in the pretty close to the spot. I want to talk to you this morning about the believer's heart. I think, um, at least I hope and pray, that, that the reason for that will become apparent as we walk through this together. The, the um, heading of this says, His steadfast love endures forever, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generation. There are several, um, the, the Psalms are actually broken up into books if you study them in that sort of detail, and some of them are used for different um, different things. This one is obviously a, a, a psalm to extol God and and a call to worship but it it also kind of just overflows with this um, exultant in uh, enthusiasm. He talks about gladness and singing, and and you and then you have this pastoral picture. We're going to talk about poetry here in in just a minute, where he talks about us being the sheep of his pasture. He talks about thanksgiving and praise. <laughs> All right, so let's skip over to Psalm one hundred two. And this says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. And I'm going to stop, even though it's so so encouraging and so much enthusiasm there. But I I I kind of looked through here and I found these two psalms that were so close together, you know, in proximity, that um, communicated opposite ends of this human emotional spectrum. You got one psalm where he's just calling, saying how wonderful God is, and enter His case with His, his gates with thanksgiving, and give Him thanks, and give Him praise, and sing. And then you got another one who says, "My bones are all dried up, and I'm passing away like smoke." What does it say? My and my bones burn 
like a furnace. So whatever the trial and the trouble was that was going on with the psalmist at that time, it was a difficult time. So I want to talk to you today about the believer's heart. And we're, we're getting ready as we read to move into these poetic books. Actually, Job is actually uh, often lumped in with them. So we get Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, um, Proverbs to some extent, and the Song of Solomon. And um, Proverbs is actually seen as a wisdom book, as is Ecclesiastes, but, but they're, they're all books that are not narratives. In other words, they're not history. They're not prophetic books that focus on prof- prophecy like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're books that, that express human emotion and human thought. They're, they have, to some degree, they have a philosophical base. You can't help but read the Psalms and see that while David and, and the other psalmists were especially David, was sitting there watching his sheep. He was thinking about things. He was thinking about the world. He was thinking about what made the world tick. He was thinking about his place in that world. And obviously, when you read Ecclesiastes and you read Proverbs, you see that that Solomon was doing the same thing. Solomon was categorizing the world and, and contemplating. As a matter of fact, he says he did this. He said, I sat down to figure out everything I could figure out. That's a Kind of a weak paraphrase, but I think you get the idea. Now, I, I want to read to you some some notes here, just that that are study notes in my Bible. And if you have the same Bible and you have read them already, then I apologize for burdening <laughs> burdening you with this. But uh, just in case you have it, um, I want to read to you just a, some of the some of the notes here because I think it'll help put things. Um, uh, in a proper uh, proper perspective. While I'm doing that, uh, turn, or as I do that, turn to Psalm 119. Excuse me, Psalm 19, not 119. Psalm 19. So you can look at it, and I'm just going to read to you the first couple lines here because it gives us a little explanation. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It says, The opening of Psalm 19, the heavens is the first part, finds an echo in the sky above in the second part. Likewise, there are parallels um, about the glory of God partners with His handiwork. So Hebrew poetry, um, you know, when we studied, at least when I studied poetry in school, most of the poetry I studied was um, uh, had a rhythm and a rhyme. And about the time I was coming up, we were beginning to study free verse and other such junk. Did I say that? Okay. There was a structure to it. And um, without going into a lot of detail, as, as our culture has degenerated, our means of communication has in some ways disintegrated and we've become less and less structured, less and less disciplined. So there are parts 
to Hebrew poetry. Now, I'm going to read this a little bit. Don't get too bogged down in it, but just kind of think as you read through this and you say, sometimes this doesn't make any sense. Maybe this will help. It says, the parallel line structure provided Hebrew poets with a means of exploiting similarity and difference on the levels of sound, syntax, and semantics. Now, the writer here had to have three S's because he probably is a wannabe preacher. All right, so sound, syntax, and semantics to achieve an artistically compelling expression of their vision. Unfortunately, of these three elements, the first two, sound and syntax, usually do not survive translation. All right? Because we, you know, when we translate the Hebrew into, the, into our language or frankly into any other language, the sound is not going to be the same. So it, it the, 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 what the, whatever the poet was trying to communicate isn't going to get to us. Uh, and, and he, he goes down and breaks down. Let me read you just a, a part of this. I don't want to get bogged down to it too much. It says, it says this, in the Hebrew of Psalm 19.1, both parts of the line are roughly 11 to 12 syllables with three stresses in the first part and four in the second. Syntactically, they form a very neat envelope structure of the A-B-C um, slash C-B-A pattern, subject, verb, object, object, verb, subject. Such symmetry already begins to express the totality of the poet's vision. So we read those two verses and, and we think that's pretty neat, but, but the poet was doing something that we're not even catching because we don't read it in Hebrew. How many are with me here so far? So as you read through some of these things, you say, well, you know, that, why, is the, why is the dude so redundant? Well, one of the things he was doing and, and, and one of the things that does come over is he's saying the same thing in different ways because that's one of the ways poetry works. I'll read one more sentence here. It says, semantics, the meaning of words are observable in the translation. So we, we see all these things going on, but frankly, we can't... Uh, the words are what's important to us. But what sometimes is missed, and what, I try to, what I'm hopefully going to get us to look at just a little bit today, is that the parts that we are missing is perhaps a communication of the heart. There is feeling in this. There is something that goes beyond the mere meaning of the words. Everybody knows, if you've had any communication, any adult knows, that there's a way to say I love you that means I love you. And there's a way to say I love you which means I felt obligated to say it. Um, let me read to you just a little bit uh, about Hebrew wisdom. Um, what the books and outlooks have in common, however, is a keen interest in the way the world works, humanity's place within it, and how all this operates under God's creative sovereign care. Biblical wisdom, then, might be defined as skill in the art of godly living. 
Now that's an interesting thing. So if we're looking for godly wisdom, what is it? It's skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of of what's my goal? What's what's godly living? Is my life glorifying Him? Is it reflecting Him? Is it honoring Him? Or more fully, the orientation which allows one to live in harmonious accord with God's ordering of the world. And wisdom literature consists of those writings that reflect on or inform that orientation. So we get into Ecclesiastes, which we're going to start reading here this week. What are we doing? We're looking at wisdom. We're seeing how one, the skill of ordering your life so that you can live in, in harmony with God, you can honor God, and live in harmony with this world. Why did they do this? They looked around the world and they said, you know, what's, what's going on here? Folks, real philosophy is found in this book, and you can't get real, honest philosophy that portrays truth without constantly referring back to the truth that God gives. I'll wait. I think someone said, for what? <laughs> um, We've we've got all kinds of, of very smart people that are down over the ages have have waxed philosophical and have given us nuggets of reality. And those nuggets of reality are okay, but unless those nuggets of reality are connected to the real reality, to the great truth. That the Lord God who sits apart from this uh, world outside this universe and created it all for his glory is is the source of all truth unless we get back to that we're we're going to miss some things um, now i i will uh, i'll throw this in here just quickly and then we'll We'll talk about it again at some other more appropriate time. But um, we are, we're encouraging you to read the book, Strange New World. And one of the reasons we're encouraging you to read the book, Strange New World, is because it explains to you how we got where we are. How one philosopher came up with some truth, did so disconnecting it from God, and another one built upon it another so-called truth, and the farther they went, the farther from God they got. Well, it, it's, we need, I, I'm praying that you'll do this because it will help you know um, where we are as a world and what we're, and what we're dealing with. Let me read to you a couple notes about, about the Psalms. Now, this is not poetry or wisdom specifically. It's about the Psalms. The English title comes from the Greek word psalmos, okay, which is a translation from the Hebrew uh, word which means songs. The Greek name for the book was established by the time of the New Testament. The Hebrew name for the book means praises. So the actual Hebrew name means praises, but by the time Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist came on the scene, they, it had been translated in, into Greek 
And the people of that day were reading and writing in Greek, and so they, they knew it, not as praises, but as psalms, which means what? Song. So it is a book of songs or a book of praises. Now I want to read one other thing that doesn't really have anything to do with any of this, but I just think it's interesting. Because in the in past the and and I made it a point when I read Psalm one hundred and one oh two to read the heading of the book. And the the heading excuse me, the heading of that chapter. Those headings have been called into question. People said, No, those headings don't fit, the language isn't right, and so on and so forth and and we've had critics down over the years that have tried to um diminish the authority of some of these things. But here's a little paragraph. It says, But the discovery of more ancient Near Eastern writings since that time has made it possible to give a fuller history of the Hebrew language and a fuller appreciation of the ancient history conventions, excuse me, of ancient literary conventions. And it is now harder to sustain those arguments for late dating. So, Basically, what they're saying is that you know those those the language of those headings was added later. The language is different, but now as we've done more um, archaeological digging, they found more and more out about the language. They find out well that's not the case. The language was more complex than you guys thought it was, and there was and and by the way, nothing ever changes, does it? I mean, it doesn't change automatically. I, I get tickled every Christmas. Because we all sing about Don, we now are gay apparel. Now, please don't do that. Okay? I mean, no, it means something different than it did when it was written. Okay? And, uh, and that didn't happen. Somebody didn't get up one day and say, yeah, let's change the name of that word. It transitioned over a period of time. So, now, Israel has a heart and mind. So when we read about wisdom, it's because, because Solomon w- was thinking about things. And, and that mind was expressed in what he wrote. When we read the Psalms, and, and although there's obviously philosophy in the Psalms also, but what, primarily we think of it as it's it's an expression of the heart. It's, a, it's, what, it's what you sing. So whether you're rejoicing and singing a song of rejoicing or you're singing the blues because things have gone bad, you're, you're, you're singing out and expressing your heart. Man's not a machine. And we sometimes think that he is. And uh, he's much more than a machine. Although, and although man has some mechanical characteristics, such as a need for fuel, okay, and, you know, machines need fuel, so my, my vehicle needs gas. I need pizza. <laughs> Notice I didn't say, never mind what I didn't say. All right, so, uh, so, so we, both, we both need fuel. However, no machine has ever become ill because it worried about anything. Okay? My my car does not stay awake at night. Well, hopefully, <laughs> my my car does not stay awake at night, wondering if it gave me a good driving experience during the day. It it you know and and so we know that humans though are quite the opposite because our 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 emotions can 
stimulate the body to extraordinary feats of strength and all kinds of wonderful things and also render it helpless. Machines don't laugh, love, or weep. Now listen to me carefully, folks, because if we, if, if, and I I don't know that I fully understand it, I like to, I like to machine-like things too. Folks, I'm a, I'm a teacher. And so I like to, you know, I like to have one, go from one to what? Two, and go from two to three, go from three to four. As a matter of fact, if I'm talking to you and you get the point and you go from one to four, I'm going to worry that you miss two and three. And so there's a mechanism, you know, I like to... I like to get the dots all and get the ducks in a row and connect all the dots. And this modern culture of ours, because we've removed God from it, thinks that man is often no more than just a machine, a higher animal. And we don't even give credit to the animals for the credit for for the way that they live. So machines don't laugh, love. Or weep. They're not emotional things. We are. We even joke about it. You know, I, I, I thought about the joke where the, the, the cop came in on the bad guy and he yells at him, put the gun down. And the bad guy goes, you're the worst gun I ever had. I wish I'd never bought you. I'll wait. Okay. <laughs> All right. So... We, 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 know that, we know that that's ridiculous. And it's not so much that we think that machines are human, although, you know, sometimes we name our cars. It's a different kind of thing there and give them anthropomorphic characteristics. Um, but what's really bad is when we go the reverse and we think that human beings are like machines. Feed them, give them food and water and nutrients, and that's all they need. Uh, Because human beings are more than the sum of their accumulated parts, the mind sciences are inexact. Folks, please listen carefully to me. The mind sciences are inexact. They are at best educated guesses. We don't even respond the same way to common medications. One of us can take a cold medicine and it, and, it, and it makes them hyper and another one takes it and it puts, another person takes it and it puts them to sleep. So you get your medicine and you read all of these things. You know, I love, I love seeing those disclaimers on TV, you know. <laughs> Side effects, uh, death. <laughs> Okay, I guess I can risk it, you know. Get rid of my indigestion, that'll fix it. (laughs) Um, I'm concerned that more and more is our, the direction our culture is going, um, the mental health sciences are going to be used more and more to control And I want to remind you that when they contradict 
the Bible, they are wrong. You say, well, people have been wrong about what the Bible meant. I know. Yeah, we can be wrong about what the Bible meant. Um, We can be wrong about almost everything. That doesn't mean we stop making decisions. Every one of us in here has had a bad meal and none of us have quit eating. So, when you look at the Psalms, you get these things. You, you, you get praise. Alright, we already talked about that. You get praise. You get rejoicing. You also get grief. You see the psalmist expressing his grief. You get lament or lamentation. Okay, I looked at this at our retreat as we were looking through this video. And again, I want to plug the book. Do you read the book? That, that one, of the, one of our responses to the way our culture is is that we ought to lament. When Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, it was because he was grieved. And we ought, as we look around us, there are a lot of things for us to be grieved about. We ought to lament. There are complaints in Scripture. You can't read through this and read what David said when you don't hear him complaining. You know, he says, God, how long are you going to let this, God, this thing go on? In other words, get busy. What are, you, what are you doing? There's expressions of faith. There's fear. There's repentance. There's betrayal. And I, 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 I stopped because I was just running out of mind energy and because... I thought it might be easier to say almost everything that a human being can go through is expressed in the Psalms. <laughs> say, well, fear, yeah. It says, what time I am afraid, I will do what? Trust in you. We all know that little verse. Well, in order for, for that trust part to make any sense, there has to be what for it? Fear. If there's no fear, the trust makes no sense. It's, it, it, it's a shallow point if there's no fear in front of it. Who can quote to me John eleven thirty five? Oh come on. Jesus wept. Thank you. You win. He helped you. He gave you one of the words. <laughs> I mean, someone asked for a hint. I mean, what can you do? If you give a hint. There's only two words. I figured you guys all knew that. I remember when I was in Bible camp, we got the same point for that as we did for this verse that had 56 words in it. It was counted as a verse. Man, everybody wanted to remember that verse. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I, I, I have my own theories. I've read some that agree with me and some that don't about why he did. I believe it was because he saw the brokenness of humanity and all the grief that death caused. Because that's the context of that is dealing with his friend Lazarus and, and his friends Mary and Martha and all the people around it. And it says very specifically when Jesus looked around and saw all the grief in the morning that he wept. 
in the New Testament, we're told to rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who weep. Can you see how in the New Testament we're given the window to weep when weeping is appropriate and to rejoice when rejoicing is appropriate and that even Jesus himself wept? I, 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 I bumped into something during the, um, the past few weeks where it talked about uh, something about emotions in men and you know, that heroes overcome this stuff and, they, and they're not plagued, uh, they're not captive to their emotions. And I, I, I thought it was interesting because, I thought it was interesting and it was wrong. I just listened to a podcast where a fellow has written his book about his experience in Afghan, his experiences in Afghanistan. He's now made a career in the army. And, uh, um, he was an NCO in Afghanistan. And they were, they were just getting beat up, and they he'd had casualties. He's lost friends, and he was he was just so worn out. He went back to his his uh, his quarters, and he dug down into the bottom of his um, footlocker, where he had saved a Snickers bar, and that was going to be his comfort. I mean, you're following the story here. And he said the Taliban mice had eaten it. And he sat down and he cried his heart out. Was the final read with uh, go with me to Second um, Corinthians. a long way from Psalms so you it's after 1 Corinthians verse 3 Chapter 1. I'm going to read quite a bit here. Read, read along. And read not only the words. Read what's being said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, <clears throat> excuse me, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Did you catch that? Paul said we were so pressed we gave up thinking about life. We despaired even of life. We got to the place where we said if we die, we die. And there, there, there are more examples in the New Testament than, than we have time to give to you today, but all of it comes back to this, that these emotions, these fears, these griefs, etc., are a normal part of a believer's life. Yet the Lord is unchanging. So there's two parts to that I want to hit real quickly. Number one, all of this business where everybody's always smiling and happy and God's in control, okay? Cut that out. If you've had a bad day and somebody asks you, how's your day? Say, I had a bad day. I tripped, you know, and fell and hit my elbow or I stubbed my toe on the dining room table as I walked through or the cat barfed on my brand new book. Or somebody said something to me that was hurtful. Or worse, I inadvertently said something to somebody else that was hurtful. And I'm grieved at myself. I firmly believe, and we've talked about it before, I firmly believe that um, singing relates to worship like asparagus relates to food. Okay? I haven't said it quite that way, but is singing worship? Yes. Is worship singing? Not necessarily. We, uh, you, you want me to figure that, you want, you're trying to figure that thing out about asparagus. I can't help you, I can't figure it out either. I can say this though, we come into a group like this, or you meet other believers and they ask you how you are, and you may not want to burden them. I understand that. But there's a time and a place to say, yeah, things really stink right now. And if you're not being truthful, you're not worshiping. And if you are being truthful, then that moment can be a time of worship. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that God is unchanging regardless of our emotional state. 
We may be broken and bent and sad and we may be frustrated about what's going on in this world and we may be lamenting and we may be grieving about what's going on and, and, we, you know, and we may be thinking that we're, we're, we're hopeless and powerless and maybe we are, and, but God is still the same. Our feelings do not determine who God is. And as a matter of fact, He is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's unchanging. He's a rock. He's referred to as a rock over and over and over again. And when our emotions go up and down, God is the same. He's steady. So, this is a normal part of life, and, and doing God's will doesn't mean you're always going to be happy. Okay? And beware the people who tell you that. They're selling you a bill of goods. They're trying to manipulate you to do something they want you to do. In this day, there are many things in our culture to lament and grieve. Take heart. The Lord knows all about them. And all we, we can lament and grieve. We just, we just refuse to give place to disobedience or, or, or doubt, unfaithfulness. We're going to be faithful. We're going to trust God and we're going to be obedient regardless. And that was a good place for someone to say Amen. Three warnings here as we jump into this and we read these, read these books. And by the way, I encourage you, there's psalm reading in our reading schedule. And I encourage you to read those psalms. Get in touch with the heart of, 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 of Israel, the heart of the believer. Listen, how, listen see, we, we skip over that stuff and then we don't know how to respond when we're sad. How do you respond when you're sad? You call on God. How do you respond when things don't work out? You, you tell God, you say, God, this isn't working out the way I wanted. What are you doing? And it won't, if, if you're honest before this, you're going to get to the same place that David did in almost all of his psalms. You're going to get, you're still God, and you're still on the throne, and I'm going to still keep trusting you. So three warnings. Number one, these books are normally not doctrine or commands. They will reinforce broad doctrinal realities such as man is sinful and God is just, etc. But we don't zero in on the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes and pull a doctrine out. Warning number one. Warning number two. The Proverbs are not doctrine or promises. They are generalities about life, humanity, the world, etc. So once again, don't go zeroing in and say, look, there's a promise. It says so in Proverbs. Okay? I love it. David said, once I was young, and now I'm old. Okay? Well, that's true. It's not true for all of you. Okay? I guess you could put older. But but then, what's the rest of that? I've never seen the righteous. Pardon me? Forsaken or his seed begging bread. Is that true? Are there not right now in our world believers without enough to eat? So was David wrong? No. Because David wasn't trying to give us an absolute. He was telling us how in general terms 
the way the world works, the way God works. Number three, these things are not prophecy unless a later writer says they are. (laughs) Okay? So we read through Psalm 22 and we read that and we say, well, they should have known, you know, they should have known, you know, it's... it's a perfect description of crucifixion written hundreds of years before crucifixion. When crucifixion came along, they should have recognized what it was. They didn't. But we get in the New Testament, we see these, and and not during, actually not during Jesus' ministry, but afterward we see these guys saying, yeah, this is what happened. And it fulfilled the scripture. You know, this that fulfilled what David wrote. But they did it after the fact. They understood now from their and, and we don't we don't read the Psalms and say, Yeah, that's what's going to happen in, in five years or ten years or when the Lord returns. So we don't get our eschatology from there. Alright. And with that I'm done. Is that a cause for rejoicing? No, it is for me. Is, is it a cause for grief or lament? It, it could be. I guess you, don't, you guys don't want me to keep going then. I'm glad he's over. Jeez. Glad that's done. Got through that for another week. All right. We made it. Heavenly Father, as we read through these wonderful books where you through your servants show us how to relate to you emotionally. You show us how to weep. You show us how to rejoice. You show us how to be angry. You show us what to do in all of those, all of those situations. Um, Lord, I've not experienced them all. I don't know everything about him, but I, I, I somehow believe that, it, that everything that a human being can, can experience is somehow wrapped up in those words. And you've shown us how to relate to you, how to relate to our fellow man, what our place is in this broken world. You've also, Lord, shown us that there will be times where we will have grief, or pain, or fear, or doubt where we say Lord help our unbelief I pray Lord that you'll not let anyone who hears me today get to the place where they think you don't know their fears and their doubts I pray you'll you'll help them know that you're there with them in all of their emotions to work through them and I pray that like the psalmist as they work through those things, they'll see that you're on your throne. That good or bad, whatever happens tomorrow, our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.